The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, today our show is about thinking and feeling differently in the new millennium. And actually, we have a wonderful book that I've been reading that I just find just fascinating. It's called an Invitation to Think and Feel Differently in the New Millennium, and it's by Harry J. Burry. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Fascinating background. He's a priest and an adjunct professor of systems management at Baldwin Wallace College, and he has taught and consulted worldwide. He, his latest book, as I said, is An Invitation to Think and Feel Differently in the New Millennium, and he is... Um, He's just amazing for all the things that he's done. He's He holds the chair as director of the doctorate program in business administration at Barafa University in Bangkok, Thailand. He teaches advanced international organizational behavior. He, he earned a PhD from Case Western Reserve uh, University in organizational behavior back in 1975. And he's also completed the Gest- uh, Gestalt Institute of Cleveland's postgraduate program in 1975. And he's been involved in individual and large-scale systems change in the in, in the uh, industrial area, public and community sectors. In addition, he's also co-developed an organic approach to management and organizational development toward creating open and free-flowing communications. And he has done just a tremendous amount of teamwork. And in this new book, which which I find really fascinating, he really talks about thinking and feeling differently and and knowing that we're all good at our core and that to treat others as if they are at their highest. And we're going to talk a little bit about the assumptions that he starts out with, that really when we are at our highest level of consciousness, we really are in able to heal conflict. And so that's why I thought I'd have him on, because this is a really wonderful book. If we think and feel differently about ourselves and each other, it's a great way to heal conflict in, in our world. So thank you so much, Harry, for joining us. I really appreciate you coming to us all the way from Ohio. Well, Mari, it's just a joy for me to be on the program, and I'm, I'm privil- I feel privileged. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. So let's talk about your, your new book, An Invitation to Think and Feel Differently in the New Millennium. What motivated you to write this book? Well, you know, Mari, I, 
I, I've been a priest now for over 50 years, and I just, and a, and a teacher, professor of organizational behavior, and I've been involved in trying to end conflicts around the world. I was uh, a peace activist during the Vietnam War, and I went to Gaza in 2004 and was a human shield between the settlers and the and the uh, Israeli forces. And I, I've just I've just felt so bad that uh, we human beings have been so cruel to each other. We have hurt each other so badly in our conflicts. And so I I've been meditating, praying over how can we stop this? How can we uh, how can we in conflict, how can we begin to really love each other? And uh, through my meditation, through my studies, through my experiences, I've come up with the idea that our behaviors are wholly influenced by our perceptions and by the way we think and feel and our assumptions, and these are influenced by our socialization, the way we were brought up. And so if we could change our socialization, this would change our assumptions, our thoughts, and our feelings, which would then influence us to behave differently and begin to love each other. So that's where I'm coming from. And and I love it. And, you know, that just brings to mind how, how really sad and frustrating it is when I see these television shows that are filled with violence or the games for young children uh, on the web or on, in the software that they buy where you're killing and you have no sense of uh, caring about another person. And and that's what we're creating in this society. If, if you're thinking this all the time when you're watching a movie or you're playing these violent games, you act that out. You're thinking it and then it becomes your reality. Is, is that how you feel about it too? That is my experience. When when people watch this kind of thing on television or play those games, what happens is they lose empathy. You know, empathy is the ability to put yourself in the place of the other and feel what they're feeling. And when, you, when we lose empathy, then we can see people as evil, and then we can treat people in an evil way. I know. And then there's this this challenge that we have with our First Amendment rights because our First Amendment rights, you know, allow people to write what they want or create movies of what they want, and we don't want to, you know, stifle that First Amendment right, but it's just, you know, I guess the only thing is to market against it, so how do we get people to stop buying it? Then they won't make it anymore because they're not making any money doing it. But unfortunately, they're still making money selling these violent movies, selling these violent games, and, um, you know, there's not enough people who think like you do. Well, I agree with you, Mari, that they'll keep uh, making this kind of thing as long as people purchase it. Uh, so we need to be able to enable people, empower people to change the way they think and feel so that they can see that watching that kind of material and participating in that kind of thing is really not in their self-interest. Right. When people realize it's not in their self-interest, then they'll stop doing it. I know, I know. And I love the fact that you have dedicated your life to make peace in the world through nonviolence. And, and, you know, it reminds me of Gandhi and and Mother Teresa and all those others. Um, how How is that congruent with being a Catholic priest? How 
how how did that work? Did that work okay for you? Was being a Catholic priest was that were people open to you as a peacemaker when you were in Gaza, or you know, where obviously there weren't Catholic people, there were the Israelis and then the Palestinians. How, how did that work with you being a priest? Well, unfortunately, um, many people have been conditioned, socialized, to think that it's not manly to. Um, do not fight back. They, they think that loving another person, especially somebody who is doing harm, is not a manly thing to do and not human. And so becoming a priest was, was a way for me to, to follow Jesus. I thought that if I'd be ordained a priest, that the purpose of being a priest was to be like Jesus, another Christ. And Jesus was a person who went around doing good, curing the sick, helping the poor. And, and when he was uh, confronted, he, he forgave those who were actually putting him to death. And so uh, that has been the, the, the spirit that I've gone you know, throughout my life, is the belief that I am called to be like Jesus and to love others, especially those who harm me or harm others. So I, I'm praying that, and I'm doing everything I can to do that, and my writing reflects that. Right. In your book, you appear to be quite optimistic about our world. You're looking at the good in everything and everyone. So um, <laughs> have you always been like that? Have you always been so optimistic, or was there a transformation at some time in your life, and what was it? Omari, well, I was blessed to have a mother and a father who really loved each other and who loved others. And they gave me that example right from the beginning. Mother would uh, bake something for the new neighbors that moved in. She was always at home, and she worked at the church, and she she was just always doing good. And my father, the same way, uh, we kept taking in people. There were three in our... I, had a sister, I have a sister and a brother, but we took in two or three or four others all the time. So we had a house full, and it was, I just grew up uh, experiencing generosity from the very beginning. And so I, I just sort of thought that's what the world is about, that the reason God created us was to uh, make life wonderful for ourselves and others. And so I guess um, I'm <laughs> just, despite what has happened, I, I think that that's what's going to be our future. Right. So we have so many kids that don't grow up in families like that, where mom isn't home, where where dad maybe isn't even in the picture, you know. So I think, you know, God bless you that you were so blessed with a good family, and, and I feel I was too. But it's it's very hard to have that optimism when you don't grow up with it, you know, because you're taught to think in a way that's negative instead of taught to think in a way that's positive. So your optimism came from your childhood, and a lot of kids have to, like, all of us have to um, re relearn how to think, to look at things in a more positive manner. And and I can see it in friends of mine, and I can see it in people that, that go to my spiritual center, that they're having to learn to think in a more optimistic way instead of thinking negatively. It's so easy to think negatively in our society. Yes, that's my experience. And what I found is that it, the way to, to, to influence is not so much by giving advice. In fact, that doesn't work very well. But it's through, um, through actual example. 
where people experience love. For example, I was in the grocery store the other day, and a mother had two children in her basket as she was going around shopping, and one of the little kids hit the other one. The one that was hit began to cry, and mother turned around and said, what's the matter? And she pointed to her brother, and she said, he hit me. And the mother then hit the child who hit the little girl and said, I'll teach you to hit. (laughs) And that's exactly what she did. She she was teaching him that, you know, that uh, power, uh, authority has the right to hit. And, And if we live in that kind of culture, as we do with the TV programs, as you pointed out, that that's what people learn. Yeah, children learn what they live. Remember that poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mention in your book, Think and Feel Differently, uh, that there's three worldviews, the pre-modern, modern, and emerging worldview. So why don't you go over those and, and then let us know what you mean by what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is the way that we look at at uh, reality, our reality, what we perceive as our reality. And so um, prior to the uh, Industrial Revolution, when people mostly were farmers and uh, uh, hunted for food and so on, that was a pre-modern worldview. People saw the world as sacred. The uh, indigenous people in this country, when they killed a buffalo, they really moaned, uh, grieved, uh, the death of that buffalo. They needed to kill the buffalo in order to survive, but they they grieved for the life of that buffalo. So everything for them was sacred. and um, But also their life was pretty absolute. They saw everything as right, right or wrong, and they, and they perceived that their wisdom was, was the truth. And then we moved to the modern paradigm or modern worldview, which... Um, is the dominant one today, and that started with the Industrial Revolution about, and is, uh, as I say, present today. And and that's disenchanting. That is to say that now uh, um, God no longer is important. What has become important is science, and uh, people believe that they either know the truth or they can uh, learn the truth. And um, it, this, this is a hierarchical kind of system that, that exists where where everything happens from the top down. And so you have science at the top, and then you have scientists, and then you have uh, CEOs, and then you have middle managers, and then you have supervisors, and finally you have the workers, or finally the women and the children and, and so on. So it's a hierarchical kind of thing, and those at the top run the show. And so the emerging worldview, which is starting now with the information uh, information uh, t- uh, background that we have, environment, uh, now people are taking on what I call these four assumptions. And one assumption is that we are always in the process of discovering. We never, ever know the truth about anything. And uh, this is really powerful because when people think they know the truth, Mari, they stop thinking about it. I remember when I asked my dad, what is that? And he said, well, that's a tree. Well, then I never thought about trees anymore because I knew what a tree was. Right. So I never knew, I never then studied about oak trees and so on. Um, so what, what has happened is that people then close their minds once they think they know the truth. Whereas if I assume that I don't know the truth absolutely certain about anything, then I have an open mind. 
if I have an open mind, then I'm willing to listen to you. And if you see something differently, then instead of me telling you you're wrong, I say, Mari, help me to see. You and I are both looking at the same thing, and you see it one way, and I see it another. Help me to see why you see it that way. Right. And my very statement that I say that causes me to be vulnerable. Help me to understand. And so we move into dialogue instead of fighting with each other. Most of the conflicts, I believe, in the world is because both sides think they're right. Look at what is happening with our Democrats and Republicans. They both think that the way they say things is the right way. Right. And so they don't have to listen to the other. Exactly. And, you know, as a mediator myself, I sit there and, and I'll say, tell me your perspective if I'm looking at the plaintiff or whatever. And then I'll turn and I'll say, this is what I heard you say is your perspective. Now I turn to the other person and I go, okay, so how is what is your perspective? How do you see it? Mm -hmm. And then they tell me, and it's very different. And I said, well, gee, you know what? From each of your perspectives, you're right, but that doesn't get us to any solutions. <laughs> so yes. so given, yes. given that you each have a different perspective and you see the world from your perspective, that's okay. You're both right, so it doesn't matter that you're both right. That doesn't resolve this. So let's talk about, given what your perspective is now, what is it that would make you feel better? What is it that you need to feel whole? Or how can we resolve this from your perspective? And then we do it from the other side. So they start to see that there's problem solving instead. So you're right. You know, if, if, if you aren't in the process of thinking right or wrong and black and white, then you are more open to, to and receptive to hearing what the other person has to say. So that one gr is great for conflict resolution. Yes, I love what you're doing there. I love it because that's uh, you're appealing to their perceived self-interest. Yes. And trying to satisfy their needs. Exactly. And that's what they want is to get their needs satisfied. So if you can figure out a way so both can get their needs satisfied, then uh, we can reach some kind of solution. And that's what's so sad about people getting into lawsuits because they're, the entire lawsuit is they're trying to prove that they're right in front of the judge. But yes. the judge... To, to give up their power for the judge to make a decision as to which one is right and which one is wrong. Yes. And when you take it out of the court system and get it in, get them into conflict resolution and mediation, you're saying, okay, let's just hear what everybody's concerns are, their interests are, and let's focus instead of on positions and who's right or wrong, let's focus on what can we do about it now. Because yes. we can't go back in the past. We can only take it from the present and move forward. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that moves to the second assumption. Yes. And the old thinking or the dominant thinking of today and the primitive is that uh, we got problems in this world, that the things are wrong, things are bad, and so we need to fix them. And so we have a fix-em kind of society, a deficit uh, kind of society, and uh, our our stars, the people we put on pe pedestals, are the people who are good problem solvers. And since they get rewarded for solving problems, they go around finding more problems to solve. So we're always looking for problems. In the new or in the emerging worldview, we we don't say there aren't any problems. We just ignore and we don't simply ignore the problems. What we do is we realize that current reality, current reality is what it is, and then we look at 
what is really good. In everything, there, there is no, nothing that exists or no event that is absolutely wrong or absolutely good. Everything has its pluses and minuses. So why focus on the minus? Why not focus on what is good and enhance it? Yes. And, and when they come to me, they already have gotten to the point where they're very angry. So at that point, you know, we, we instead of saying, okay, we look at the bad, we look at, okay, so, so yes, you've brought a problem, but every problem is an opportunity in disguise. Exactly. Right? Yes. It's an yes, opportunity that's... to get creative and find solutions. So mm-hmm. that's how mm-hmm. I present it that, you know, I, uh, similar to what you do, but I, I mean, I recognize that you, that each party says there's a problem here. So, okay. So the problem really within the problem is the solution. Mm-hmm. Within the problem is the opportunity to collaborate and create something better or create yes. something that, that really does meet each other's needs because you can't always put some some uh, group back together i mean sometimes it is meant to release a, a new you know that each party or each partner or whatever it is 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 ready to move on to do something different for for their mm-hmm. own higher purpose right right so right. so if you just look at the problem is really the the um the birthplace of the solution then you have to look for that that solution and look for that opportunity to be creative yes and that's what i call vision yes so what we be- begin to do then is to envision what could be what can be and then we use uh self talk to make it happen we begin to talk and think as if it already is happening as if it were present yes and when people begin to do that then they create their own reality it becomes present yes it's an amazing thing it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yes and we're seeing that all over the place and in a lot of literature besides your wonderful book which is called so that my audience can hear an invitation to think and feel differently in the new millennium by Harry J. Berry. And, it, you know, the, I think the interesting thing about that is we've seen, like, the movie The Secret, or we've seen um, books like Creative Visualization, or many, many books are talking about, uh, and Wayne Dyer talks about, you know, see it and you'll believe, I mean, believe it and you'll see it. Mm-hmm. That, that that is, it's like, well, you being a man of God, you know, you know that God said the word and then the word created the universe. So, you know, that's that we can be like that ourselves is that when we say something and we believe it, then it comes to fruition. And Mm -hmm. that is just, Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing. And people don't know. Some people say, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, they'll never see it. (laughs) No, that's exactly what happened. That's my experience. Yes. Yes. And, and, uh, and, uh, the point of, of, of first believing what happens is that then you begin to see things you can do to make it happen that you would have missed otherwise. You know, whatever you can think of, you can do. You can mm-hmm. do that. Right. And that's what we have to tell ourselves is we can. We can. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I know. Good. I mean, Good. yeah. I mean, that's, that's truly the thing. When I walk into a mediation and there, let's say there's, you know, several attorneys and their clients and they've all been angry and they're, they're forced into mediation by the judge, and, I'm, and I'll say, 
I have an intention that by the end of the afternoon, we're going to solve this and Mm -hmm. we are going to solve this. And then you're each going to get a little gift because I know that we're going to get through this and we're going to solve it. And, you know, and, you know, nine, nine times out of 10, we'll solve it that day Mm -hmm. or it may Mm -hmm. take a little longer. But but Mm -hmm. if I go in with that and just tell them you can do it, it's it's like the little engine that could. It's amazing how it works. That's right. So now let's talk about the third assumption. Okay, the third assumption is that we are all one, that uh, we, are, we are assuming that we're not as separated from each other. Now, of course, people will say, well, that, that doesn't make sense at all. Of course I'm separated. You and I aren't, aren't the same persons. But, you know, uh, there was a time when people all believed that the earth was flat and that the sun went around the earth. And um, that was the sensible thing to do. And now they don't believe that anymore. Now we believe, we assume, that the earth is not flat, but uh, a sphere, and that the earth goes around the sun. Yes, and so... Yeah, so same, when we same have... way with quantum physics. You know, there was a time when this table where I'm sitting at right now, here in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, it seems to me to be solid, and if I bump my foot against it, I'd hurt my toe. And yet we know from quantum physics that it's really not solid. It is a vacuum. So while our senses tell us it's solid, and while our senses tell us the world is flat, it's actually not flat. And so isn't it possible that we are all one and that our separation is for for lack of a better word an illusion yes huh? yes and the fact that we're different colors or different races or different religions that really and truly we are just one in this universe so let's go to the fourth one and then we're we're just about out of time the fourth oh one goodness. i know the first the fourth one is that we are all good talk about that real quick well, just as I didn't in the first assumption, and I'm not assuming that we that there is no truth, only that we can't know it. So here I'm not assuming that there is no free will, only that we rarely use it. And we always do what seems best, and we cannot not do it. We're not free not to do what is best. So the more mature I am, the more alternatives I can see. Like this morning I could have done other things. Yeah. Um, but beyond your program, but once... My mind said the best way to spend this these this half hour is with Mari. Then there was no way that I could do it. anything else. I was not free. But if I got new information, if I got a call that my brother was dying and he needed me, you know, then I would have called you, Mari, and I would say, "Oh, Mari, I'm sorry, but I can't be on your program." I wouldn't say, "Mari, I choose not to be on your program. I choose to go to my brother's." bedside because he's dying. No, I'd say, I can't. In other words, I'm not free. We always do what seems best, and we're not free to do anything else. Now, what's the implication? It means that everybody's well-intentioned. They do terrible things. We know that. But everybody is acting in their perceived self-interest according to their value system, so they think that what they're doing is a good thing. And so when we change, when each of us changes our thinking to, to be our highest self, that we know that we're good, we'll act good. When we believe we're good, we'll act in that way and act with a good conscience, too. Yes, so- that happens. And the important thing for solving conflict is to 
understand or appreciate or assume that people don't set out to do evil. Because if we, if, if we think they set out to do evil, then, then we perceive that they are evil. And the key to conflict resolution is to realize that people's, to make a distinction between the person and the behavior. The person is good, but they sometimes do bad things. A good parent, you know, may be very unhappy with the behavior of their child, but they never stop loving their child. Exactly. Well, we are out of time, Harry, so this is really wonderful. So why don't you just give your website and then we got to go. www.harry, H-A-R-R-Y, J, Burry, B-U-R-Y, dot com. Well, thank you, Harry, and we'll have you back again, and thanks again for this wonderful book. Oh, God bless you, Mari. Thank you you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30, and also visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Look at our upcoming guests and download podcasts and listen to archived interviews. Write us emails about what's important to you about peace in your life. Thanks. It's about trust. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC 